Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Are you telling me you never planted any evidence, Sergeant? Planting evidence? Framing suspect? That's a lie. I think I can prove it, Sergeant. What do I do? Keep after him, brace him! Brace him! He's gonna leave this town wishing he and that wife of his had never been born. Welcome to The Syndicate, a film and TV podcast. Be a part of the conversation as industry insiders, genre lovers, and cinephiles dare to peek beyond the curtains of imagination and dive into the art of cinema. Join us as we want you to spend less time scrolling and more time watching. Now here's your host, Armand Haddad. Guys, thank you again for coming on. Last time we talked was Shin Ultraman, so we did Mulholland Drive. Shin Ultraman, mm-hmm. and now we're talking about the touch of evil. <laughs> What's our theme? Mm, <laughs> I was just about going to ask all that. over the place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Mike, thank you again for coming back. Diego, thank you for coming back. Thank you. Glad to have you too on again. So, let's get the ball rolling. Even though I suggested this, mm-hmm. because like Mike, you were like, let's watch an Orson Welles film, and I didn't want to be a normie <laughs> and say let's watch Citizen Kane. So I was like, okay. <laughs> Let's watch The Touch of Evil. Now, you've seen this yeah, before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see. I thought you had already seen it. And oh. I was like, oh, why did Armand pick That's that? Like, right. well, I'm like, I'm like wondering, like, if you like a certain style or like themes or whatever. And then I'm like, oh, partway through, I think we were like 10 minutes in. You're like, yeah, I've never seen this. And and I was like, oh, well, now, like, like, because mm-hmm. you, you silently yeah. feel the audience you're with, you know, like who oh, yeah. hasn't seen it. You're like keeping your eye on it. Uh-huh. And, I, and I was keeping an eye on you. Like, how is he watching it this time? And it's like, oh, you're just watching it for the first time. Mm-hmm. And you and Diego, you were you had seen if you hadn't seen it yet. No, and, not yet. You've I, shown me the um the opening scene, though. You've just mm-hmm. you were because I think I talked about um something about what is that one movie uh where it's, it has a really lo- it's shot very long it's a oh. world war one 
Oh, 1917. Um, or, yeah, yeah. or was it an earlier one? No, I think it was. I think it was that one. But we were just. I think we were talking about that. And I mean, yeah. we we're always talking about like really cool cinematography shots and the the intro and just like how it starts off is really cool. So oh yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So so how did you find out about this movie to begin with, Mike? Oh, uh, like I've had a like on and off love affair with cinema, which. I feel like it's somewhat typical, but is like really sort of personal journey for each person. Mm. So, you know, when my attention went on to like long shots, this movie, obviously the mm-hmm. opening scene is yes. a classic. How could you think it's anything else? Right. Um, the other part of it, um, sort of wanting to find where film noir had a lot of like sort of things escaping their own genre, you know, like, mm as a teenager, I got into Blade Runner and I like found out what Neo Noir was. And then I was like, well, how did film noir sort of like build its own ecosystem the way that like rock and roll has or Mm -hmm. something like that. But film noir is much more bespoke, you know, Mm -hmm. like it's this really narrow, like, okay, it's a pot boiler or whatever it's called. Hard boiled crime. Like, you know, like uh, I, I wanted to see a weird take on that. And there's a lot of Orson Welles in that, like, this the third man you know mm-hmm. all of that mm-hmm. right right yeah like for me orson wells i always see him as citizen kane yeah oh yeah because he literally is citizen kane yes. he's more of a invisible yeah. force in magnificent ambersons but yes. like in citizen kane he's very yeah yeah yes so, and i know diego you haven't seen citizen kane correct so this was your first Orson Welles movie? Yes, it was. I've never seen an Orson Welles And this movie. is quite a doozy because like before <laughs> <Yeah>. we even <laughs> – Quite. <laughs> yeah, because he plays a piece of shit the whole time. Oh, yeah. 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 He's just so good at being like – like what a level of awareness. Like, oh, I just like gained a bunch of weight. I just yeah. like look unhealthy. Like was that like his – yeah. So ta- why don't you guys kind of tell me where this follows within his like discography – uh, compared to was Citizen Kane like at the more of a height of his like career? That was it, his first movie, right? Yeah, well, so his career went across media. So he okay. got into radio. Right. He did this sort of War of the Worlds performance that mm-hmm. this is the infamous like oh people called in and thought they were really being invaded. People freaked out. This was like yeah. the introduction to World of the Worlds too. Like he's. Yeah, it was it was known to like sci-fi fans, which were like children essentially that were like weird. It was very yes. not normalized the way sci-fi's upfront. Oh set man, yeah, it was my. Fi- I remember reading that book in fifth grade. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a great book to read in fifth grade. Like very much, H. E. Wells is like yes. you're allowed to imagine a better world. Like mm-hmm. forward. Like you you mm-hmm. can't help but love H. G. Wells' sense of wonder. But but so so Orson Wells took that and basically you know he's got this um, pinky in the brain voice. You know mm-hmm. like this timbre. Mm-hmm. So he went on as a like news anchor. He presented the war of the world story as if he was the news anchor throughout the story as if it was happening mm-hmm. right now yeah like mm-hmm. in the present tense like very oh, yeah. i bet we can easily find that online too easily. yeah and i yeah. listened to it i think for like the 100th anniversary yeah it was in the 30s right how long maybe not, yeah maybe like 75th or 80th anniversary anyways okay. i listened yeah. to it and i'm like i could see why people freaked out yeah it sounds really? pretty realistic when, and like because i feel like i could listen to this like a podcast like uh, yeah. i could like work and it's then just YouTube. like yeah, I'm like uh, listen, what's honestly. the what's the show that's directed by the Mr. Robot uh director, but it's like based on a podcast that's like all audio. Couldn't tell you. Dr. Death. Oh, it's 
oh, I can't remember it, but it, it, it evoked that feeling of like, oh, like audio as a storytelling medium, not in imitation of text. Like, mm-hmm. this is interesting. It was done through like voicemails and that sort of thing. But anyway, I wanted to go back to Orson Welles and like who this guy was. You know, he he started out his life jumping around, living in a million places, and he had almost no friends. And he would basically put on Shakespeare plays by himself and play all the roles and get really into all the roles and get really into blocking and arrangement like himself, you know, and he's like 12 and he's like reading King Lear. Mm -hmm. So he brought a lot of a sense of theater. And I think he brought theater in the wider, like cross genre sense of how theater desires to eliminate everything, but the medium itself and make the medium feel real and emphasize the fact that people are alive. Mm-hmm. You know, theater is very much a medium that is, that has a heartbeat. There's no heartbeat in the recording you're listening to. There's a, there's a heartbeat in the live show, you know, yep. and in theater is like, how do we take the fact that it's live and redirect it on something that is rehearsed, you know? And I, I think mm. Orson Welles brought that to radio. He brought that to film. You know, he, he talks about, um, he talks about how, have you heard about how, citizen kane was made or like why it was so wild please uh please tell me okay okay (laughs) so i know a little bit so Mm. there's like there's a million youtube videos of like we watched one before this movie very briefly of orson welles you know kind of like strung out on bourbon and cigars talking about like churchill and the like wonderment of life or whatever one time i met hitler he was a yeah yeah that one like i met hitler and he was boring and it's like (laughs) how are you going to deflate fascism as an ideology to like reveal that it makes you forgettable like what an oddly like astute way to combat glory as a vice you know i also i think it also just felt a little performative for him to Oh, a hundred percent down. Like, yeah. It was like, yeah. Okay. Yeah. It was sense. very much his theater. He's very theatrical ah, and like, okay. you know, he's like almost playing a version of himself in these interviews. But yeah. so <laughs> he's some heavy hitters. Unforgettable. Like, yeah. Oh <laughs> he's, he's just like every little consonant comes out as a well-rounded Andy mm-hmm. Warhol painting, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, probably why he has that rhythm in his voice too. It's yeah. just like, he's just like the timbre of but mm-hmm. and when, um, but, Oh, you know what? And I was going to watch this. There's a, there's a uh, a video on, I believe it's, um, what's it called? Every Frame of Painting. They yes. have a thing where they intersplice Orson Welles and South Park and how they use the same storytelling beats what? of like okay. the but then or meanwhile. And he's like showing how like it was an oh F for God. fake by Orson Welles. But then they're also showing like a South Park episode, you know, and how right. the beats are kind of similar and like both artists kind of stick to that very closely Mm -hmm. so the the whole thing i was originally getting at though was when they gave one of these interviews and he's like they're like how'd you get away with all this wild experimental stuff on your first movie citizen kane and he was like well simply nobody told me it couldn't be done so i demanded it be done and i told them how it should be done and i had a cameraman and he was wonderful he was unafraid of failing so he tried all of it or whatever and it's like and he's trying to make a case for like how you shouldn't let technology limit your imagination. And as a programmer, I see a lot of programmers do that, but (laughs) it's also this idea of like, maybe approach everything. Like it's your first time because he did with a lot of skill and a great artistic eye. So he's Mm -hmm. walking in with that, whatever, but he wants, he wants it to not resemble theater. You're like, Oh, he's a theater guy. He's going to walk in with theater, right? But he's walking in with this. What can the camera do? How can the camera be as organic 
as all of us are in theater. You know, that's that's what I think he brings to Citizen Kane and you see it in the rest of his work. Orson Welles is a true innovator because like before Citizen Kane, all the films of like the 1950s were like shot like flat as if they were trying to recreate (laughs) theater. Because like you said, theater, there's a heartbeat to it. I've seen many Broadways and like they're they're feeding off the audience, the audience Mm -hmm. feeding off of the the cast. Like there's a symbiotic relationship going on. It's very much alive. Yeah. And but if you were to just look at the theater, it's like it's a stage. Everyone's present, you know, everyone's yeah, very two dimensional yes. with layers. Right. So like, like to recreate, so like there's this new invention called cinema, like, oh, so they would just recreate what they see on the stage and everything's flat, everything's in focus. And with Orson Welles, especially with this film, The Touch of Evil, he's yeah. very innovative with like the camera movements yeah. and what he's focusing in, yeah. you know, the blocking, mm-hmm. you know, the, the mm-hmm. whole composition that he's painting. Yeah in these frames is just absolutely beautiful. There's many times where I like, I said a little bit tongue in cheek, but like I meant it like, wow, that was a perfect shot right there. Like, yeah. The way everyone was standing. And when yeah. you were saying like when he was doing Shakespeare by himself, yeah. Like, <laughs> positioning everybody. It's like, well, you mm-hmm. could see it as yeah. an adult when he's, you know, his blocking. This movie. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's, mm-hmm. His blocking is fantastic of the, where he positions everyone. Why don't, um, also, why don't we talk about like what blocking is? So like why, and why it's important within cinema and how this movie also, you know, was a standout for this technique. Yeah. Um, so blocking broad, broadly is one of those things that's in both sort of theater and film. Mm-hmm. It's essentially where you position the cast. Okay. So kind of what Armand was getting to of how like a theater is essentially, you know, even though we're all three dimensional beings, mm-hmm. everybody's kind of looking from this perspective of the audience. So you mm-hmm. you block in a very 2D way. You yeah. block as if you're doing a Super Nintendo cutscene, yeah. right? Like where you get maybe layers, mm-hmm. but you're thinking about how those layers become a foreground and a background. You're looking at the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and in cinema, it's a bit trickier because like, like what, like when they filmed things in the thirties, you were saying yeah. about like how it was basically filmed like theater blocking right. was very much, where do you put the two or three people that are in a given shot on a screen? There was also um, a scene in the movie too, where there was like the, there was Orson Welles all the way in the distance and yeah. then the two other detectives like on this nice perfect angle yes. and then here comes the protagonist kind of perfectly taking in Charleston Heston. the Charleston Heston like yeah. coming in on the uh kind of on the opposite side and yeah. just kind of blocking perfectly and then balanced literally yeah. <laughs> uh even you know was talked into you know like all right told one of the detectives like yeah let's go and then they go in the opposite direction yes. so you feel like this triangle almost like kind of just mm-hmm. being visualized the geography yes. of that scene is yeah it's Very fantastic cool. yeah. you know exactly where everyone is at any given time oh yeah mm-hmm. of You're course like, there was a bridge at the ending it totally yeah. makes sense look, look you know just <laughs> <laughs> just the architecture of like ah couldn't have been done without <laughs> the perfect shape you know what i mean oh yeah so, that's yeah. fantastic oh yeah wow that's a uh, this this wine is also fantastic would you, a good wine would you yeah. like some more yes would you like to say what kind of wine we're drinking? Uh, this is Mike's wine, so Mike, what we got? <laughs> oh man, I, I don't, don't even know French which bottle either, you so. opened. Oh, Domaine Baron de la Cuse. I actually have no idea what. It's a magnifique, monsieur. <laughs> and it literally oui. just says red wine on the back. Oui. <laughs> oui. Um, Say vrai. Where is? I I guess that's that's the barony. I don't know where this is though. I'm embarrassed. I know nothing of the wine I have. I actually no it, it just tastes good. 
you know every mm-hmm. time i go there i ask them like give me a wine that is like a story and then the last time i went it was like God. super bowl sunday and for some reason everyone wanted wine and i was like okay it's crowded i don't have time to talk like mm-hmm. you know we're mm-hmm. gonna find out maybe it was later than super bowl sunday there was a big tv event going on though oscars yeah i was about to say oscars, oscars. oh yeah. yeah yeah that's basically it's like super that's bowl fun. sunday for cinema files yes. you know yes. uh, i could totally skip it though yeah i did skip it yeah, <laughs> i didn't want to actually because I, I was we're like, living in the good timeline because yeah. Everything, everywhere, all at once. One best picture and Brendan Fraser. <laughs> one best actor. Oh, so yeah. Michelle Yeoh. Did they one best get actress? It? Yeah. Did they finally get it? Like, did they? they was it good? It. Okay. I was just waiting for the Emmys to catch. Not the Emmys. And short round. One yeah. best supporting actor. It's not oh, Oscars. Yeah. Some Grammys. We're just Grammys. waiting for the Grammys to catch up. Oh yeah. Grammys but, are. I'm not going to count on the Grammys. But what Don't about the VMAs? <laughs> i'm making a joke it didn't land the lightning Anyways, went off crickets, right crickets, when you said crickets, that crickets. Like, yeah I, I, yeah okay there was like what about the yeah. li- what about the vmas <laughs> yeah you know sigh that's on yeah right 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 <laughs> but but going back i want to go back to uh to the entire you know touch of evil topic yes. um i i feel like a lot of touch of evil is almost like the the ideal career of an artist in reverse because you know, he started out with Citizen Kane and Magnificent Ambersons. He got this great contract for that, right? He got he got the ability to make it whatever he wanted in Citizen Kane and Magnificent Ambersons, and they punished him for it. They re they uh they they went back on the contract under Magnificent Ambersons. They cut it up. They edited it. And you look at the rest of his career, and it's probably at like half the height of those first two movies. I mean. This was they basically wanted a B movie, as I understand it. Um, they have a this was a, essentially going to be a B movie or it was yeah. marketed as one. Mm-hmm. And it's like you watch this, and you're like, wow, I wish the like mail it in low budget like crime films looked as good today. You know, like, <laughs> I think that's the other thing is that I haven't seen a lot of noir films and I mm-hmm. can't quite like pin this as like whether this is good or bad or really even like what are tropes of the genre and how this bends that well you I don't know i think it was bending or it was commenting he, on the noir because like it was still relatively new because mm-hmm. noir was like 30s and 40s and this is like late 50s so it's no, this like, is early isn't it it's i thought it was between 52 and 55 i thought it was during the war during wait this film, movie no Touch no no, no. oh film noir. Like, yeah you're right noir. film noir orbits around the 40s so yes. a little before a little after mm-hmm. like and this is 1958 so this is like oh it's 50s. 58 okay yes. i thought it was i thought it was like 52 but it's still compared to a lot of just i'll put it this way diego there's a whole lot of movies not worth seeing anymore from that era because they're they're so plain that there's such a fight to become even like mediocre today as like a film that you watch a movie and even if it's bad at least it's thrilling or artistic or mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes it's fun because it's violent and, and and because they couldn't make movies like violent, they couldn't make them sexual. They couldn't make them like intense in any other way. They were even the comedies weren't that great. There was such a like, you know what I mean? There was such a static ocean of mediocrity to me. Dude. Like there, there's a lot of great films, but in terms of percentage. Oh, so 50. So that's like yeah. this uh, puritanical uh, McCarthyism esque. I mean, it's like puritanical compared to the 60s. Yeah. But 
we got to remember that the 50s saw themselves as like the most liberal time up to that point, mm-hmm. right? Oh. They saw themselves very much on that old, like, yeah, liberalism is anti-communism and it's turning a blind eye to whatever we did in Latin America and like, you know, all for the fruit company or whatever. Like they, they, there was a complaint that William F. Buckley made in the fifties of we are living in the most liberal era. And he was basic. He was a conservative. He wanted, he was one of the people that was eventually going to be the architect to bringing Ronald Reagan in. But at the time he was complaining that he was like intellectually, there are no intellectual conservatives left. They're all different intellectual liberals, like in terms of justice, in terms of like all these things, like it, it was almost like on the eve of the 60s revolution, the old world liberals claimed victory. And when they did, people kind of realized the limit of it, like even having the Republicans be like pro business, pro cop. But for the 50s, a lot of them were pro choice, like the, the, the father of George H.W. Bush founded Planned Parenthood, like. We got to remember there was this very elite kind of closed, like, you know, East Coast white liberalism that was very like market oriented and it but it was liberal. Mm-hmm. And and so I, 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 I'm trying to contextualize it and like, did these people like did they see themselves as like a fundamentally conservative force or a fundamentally like reforming force? And like they saw themselves as reformers and revolutionaries in a very, in a way we kind of find like pathetic or funny today. Like, Mm -hmm. wow, this passed for liberalism, but in their world, you know, it's always going to be constantly changing because like with progressivism, you're always going forward. Well, yeah. And I hate the phrase conservatism. It's like, what are you conserving? Well, because I I feel like it's the same forces driving society forward. It's just conservatives. Conservatism is just progressivism driving the speed limit. Yeah, I so mean, you could be right, forward. but I think the a point you're bringing up there is that a person who is a conservative has a much narrower threshold for like everything for things that are unresolved, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like they want that truth. They want that finality. And a lot of plurality is the fact that your narrative no longer gives you finality and you have to accept that. But how does that affect the film world? Because like we watch this movie and like mm-hmm. it does have some pretty dark undertones to it but yeah. it's just referenced to it's just touched upon yeah like there's yeah, this one scene where it's like yeah i, I was like okay we're yeah. gearing up for this for like a while and it's like when we finally get <laughs> yeah, there you made that it's like we don't see it happen it's like i feel like there's external forces influencing this and you did reference it yeah so so this was as the the code was breaking down in the late 50s early 60s i would say like I don't know, roughly between when TV got big in the mid fifties to like, I think the, around the time JFK got shot, there was still nominally a code in film The I believe it was the Hayes code, right? Or was the Hayes code the earlier one? I don't know. To okay. be honest. I think it was called the Hayes code. I, somebody, somebody code. might listen to this and be like, oh, it wasn't the Hayes code. Like, <laughs> okay. Then you're right. And I'm wrong. And I don't know the name, but there was a code where there was a concern that film was seen as something very, um, body, and sort of almost burlesque about it in the twenties and thirties. And we have to dirty business. Yeah. I mean like cinema was not considered an art until like well after world war two, it wasn't, it wasn't treated the way we treat it now. And, and this was also an era that did not treat anything that was not classical as art in music. Like this was before jazz was considered the like classy aristocratic complex music. It was still considered. I mean, you hear it in the movie. It's, it's used to reference 
people of ill intent arriving like mm. this jazz music starts playing but mm. but uh, i, I think, smoking doobies oh my yeah. god how could they the reefer yeah and the yeah. jazz music. they're yeah they, they they put reefer before heroin as like the dangerous drug do you did you see that yes, where they're 1950s. like 1950s they're like reefer but also heroin but whatever yeah, about the heroin right. but there That's is reefer. it was also set in mexico and uh, back then, that was the justification. There's this new drug called marijuana. Oh yeah, and, uh, and coming Mar- from <laughs> Mexico. And the two demographics that commonly, perpetually smoked marijuana were Latino and Black people. Like, and so you, you, when there, there's also a dog whistle thing going on here of where they say, you know, like, oh, I think he's a drug addict. The association was like, oh, white people get drugs from minorities of color, like. That was the so when when like Orson Welles's character makes that remark, it seems like a stretch and you're watching it like who would fucking buy that? But it's like, oh, that's such an accepted narrative at the time. Like mm-hmm. you can just say, oh, it doesn't matter. He's a Mexican cop in like the cabinet of Mexico. He probably does drugs and he probably got his wife into drugs. Mm-hmm. And like, right. you know, that that's sort of like, I don't know. I no, guess you're, you're absolutely <laughs> right, because like yeah. at the core of the story, we have Charleston Heston's character. Who's, he's playing this. uh high up federale agents yeah. and like mm-hmm. he's married to an American woman and she's white. Yeah. So it's yeah. like, you have like that dichotomy going on, but let's summarize the movie before, because I feel like we're crouching into oh, the we're, movie. Yeah. I'm, I'm dragging this all over the place. <laughs> so who, uh, uh, Diego, Mike, Yeah. who would like to summarize the plot of the touch of evil as uh, Mike and Diego look at each other? It's like a standoff. I guess I'm just honest. This is just actually it's a Mexican standoff. There's yeah. a lot going on. Are you like worried you're going to mix up? That's okay. No, I'm actually just trying to think of in the the intro, um, the first ever crime. <laughs> I'm like, how did that start off again? Like, I'm trying to figure. I'm just trying to remember. Like, someone planted a bomb right. on the on the businessman's um, car, and was the businessman related to? This is a great summary. Yeah. (laughs) So, so, so what it's nominally like the crime that happened is like sort of the B story. So it's not really important. You get it right. Yeah. Yeah. It it sets up the dirty cop. Yeah. I mean, the the big conflict of the movie is the ideological conflict between Vargas and, um, oh my God, I just call him Orson Welles. Um, Captain Quinn, right? So, yeah, so there's there's like an ideological divide and that crime introduces that conflict. I think that's it's like by the time they get to the end of the movie and I'm not going to like give away the bigger part about the end of the movie, but the the crime is a very marginal thing. And even when they bring up its relevance, it's almost ironically done at the end of like, well, that doesn't matter anymore. The like rotten nature of Quinlan's heart has sort of been. Yes. you know laid out flat for all to see mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> absolutely so essentially the crime in the beginning is just like how vargas and hank or miguel and vargas uh, miguel and hank run into each other yeah you got it thank yeah. you i mean like it also sets up the fact that like you know a lot of this has to do with sort of um grandy i'm gonna get his name wrong but grandy so grandy is essentially tied to the previous case essentially as a bias against Vargas. Right. Right. Cause his brother is in the, involved in the whole thing. Yes. And what ends up happening is he sort of the reason Quinlan gets assistance, you know, the more I'm explaining this, the more I'm thinking, no, that isn't a prelude. That's, that's the entire 
movies, these two stories constantly intertwining. Mm-hmm. Right. Cause um, you have Vargas against Quinn and then yeah. the B story is Vargas's wife. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. uh, I guess this is a gang of Mexican guys, which is then connected to, Oh, don't forget the LGBT representation. It was the, their idea of lesbians. Did you see that? No, their there idea of was, gay women. Yeah, yeah, there was. So the women that also went into the room at the same time. Yeah, it's like who has reefer? Like gay people and Mexicans. That's the implication. Oh, okay. That's gotcha. The, gotcha. Yeah, the implication. That's the nineteen. Yeah, the implication. It's like, <laughs> and you you don't know. That's that's. I think there's like a narrative question in the movie of like. How much is Orson Welles co-opting this and how much is he winking at the audience of like, oh, like just kind of like Quinlan, like we can write this off as an explanation, you know, like that, that like uh, sexual minorities and like racial minorities are the reason that drugs are crossing the border. Mm-hmm. Do you, you know? feel I just feel like that's just a byproduct of 1958. Like, I don't that's think what, like that's what was, I mean. I don't think he's perpetuating that stereotype. It was just like, yeah, I didn't really, I didn't, that. I didn't think he was perpetuating it, but I didn't know if like, I felt I like it was a vehicle for the story. You know, I, I, I almost though, I got like a, a vibe that I got in crash where it's like part of this narrative is doing one thing and part of it's doing another thing. Like, okay. On, on one I didn't hand, really, I didn't really feel like, sorry, I cut you off. Yeah, no, no, go ahead. Go ahead. No, it was just, I, I did. I guess I didn't. I never really noticed that because it just felt like such a subplot. It just kind of yeah. felt like it was um, accurate to the time. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, like, that's true. So that's just what I thought. No, and I and I guess you bring up a a, a point of a like perspective of the time. Should I? Say? Yeah, and the movie's very much veiled in a like very caricature like sort of thing. Like uh, especially with Quinn. Oh my god! Oh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Diego was saying like I good like a cartoon character. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah. I, there was a few times where I was having trouble like taking him seriously because he was like so bad yeah where he's like such a piece of garbage who plays his like implied ex-lover quinn yeah the the woman oh um, the is that marlene dietrich is that marlene dietrich? i thought it was uh, sophia loren for a second no 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 but you're thinking of the other person was Sophia. no 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 who was this all the dudes look the same all the women look the same I was like, is that Charleston Heston? Oh no, it's just because it's a black black and white movie too. I feel like, and I all think the that's actors like it's kind of like The Bachelor. All the bachelors look the same. Oh yeah, they're all like white dudes, yeah. brown hair, lupus, heteronormativity, <laughs> <Chisormative laughs> man. Yes. I am waiting for, uh, well, I guess like a black bachelor. I'm, I'm pretty certain they did that already. But like, Wait, it was I, I want a Gabor. I want a bi bachelor. We're way off topic. I want a bi bachelor. I was like, you want to really ruffle some feathers. Put some dudes in the bachelor, and he's like, "Well, you know, that would well, be nice. Let's see. That would be that cool. would be yeah. a bi bachelor would be bi bachelor, and then like, oh, that that could add so many dimensions of conflict. Oh. Like, we should copyright that, and then just do what everyone does in twenty first century capitalism. Like, you know, collect the, the they depiction. Did, they did a bachelor with two girls. They weren't like dating right, each other, right, but right, like right. it was like." Two people. Okay. I was like, "Listen, go all the way. Have <laughs> have a mixed bag." I, w- I wonder what that's like because then now- their ratings would skyrocket. Well, like their what ratings if you are had, What if you had all poly people, but they're all also astronomers? So it's called the constellation, but it's like an <laughs> ironic self reference. And then there's like different kind. You know, there is like I think there's like a <laughs> Spanish dating show that's has like a Milf lot of Manor. astrological references. 
I could see that. I don't know what like, it's called, but yeah, Milf Man. So, I don't know. <laughs> you know, you know, you know about Milf Man? I don't know what streaming service that's. On, <laughs> no, so. is there? Wait, wait, wait! Stop! Is there really? A, we don't know about no, it. No. Okay, then we'll no, get you, back you to touch this, of like, evil. Postured way, you're like. Well, you haven't heard of Milf Man. That's unacceptable. Like, yes. Like, like, wait, what? Listen, okay. Milf Manor, this mm-hmm. is the premise. So okay. there's like, say, like eight dudes, and then there's eight older women. All of the contestants that are guys. Yeah. Those are their moms. No. <laughs> so all the dudes are like dating each other's mom. And there's this one, you want to get more depraved about it? Yes. There's this one, like, exercise that they were doing on the show i don't watch the show but like the woman had to like massage the contestants and figure out based on the body no which one was their son freud was right <laughs> anime was a mistake no <laughs> reality you, you know reality shows are a mistake yo okay I, I feel like reality tv is like okay we see all these narratives through like all these lenses and reality tv is like can we just get rid of like the lens of it having a plot the lens of time just we just want the lens of television with very generous editing that invents the story. <laughs> like if Tarkovsky, but Tarkovsky said that like uh, cinema is sculpting time, then reality TV is just like the guy with the chainsaw cutting the log into a bear, like, but churning out a hundred of them. Those are the editors of reality TV. That is what the, the sense of time, you know, being sculpted is time has been sculpted into a narrative for the most inane, forgettable people. <laughs> and with the touch of evil, I think it's sculpted time very well. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Because oh, like, yeah, it was it was Shakespearean about, you know, essentially a a murder involving like a local crime lord on the border. You know? Right. Like yeah. and, and that's just like you said, that's just the backdrop. So like the driving force or the inciting incident, there was a car bomb. It goes off on the border of U.S.-Mexico border. Yes. And we have the sheriff of Texas trying to investigate and also the federale agent, Charleston Heston, also mm-hmm. trying to investigate. So like this crossing of streams going on. Mm-hmm. So that's the point of contention. And it's kind of like – and as I was watching it, I'm like, okay, is Quinn or Samuel's character out of his jurisdiction because he's in Mexico? Or is- I think they make it gray because they keep showing how both of them just – act like cops they're entitled to their authority regardless of where they are right and i don't think the movie really questions like if cops acting like they have unlimited jurisdiction is a betrayal of like sort of the the virtues of a republic of limited government because i think that's that's kind of become a much more like contemporary question of like the cool action cop in a movie that gets justice done anywhere like yeah well, are you really like, is a teacher allowed to give her kid a detention when they run into each other at a grocery store? Like we have something against overstepping jurisdiction that very recently, it's just funny to see in a movie like this, like the mm-hmm. wrong thing about them is not that they overstep because everyone does that. The virtuous ones, even Vargas. Yeah. I mean, he acts like a cop up in Texas, the way he's treating people, the way he's demanding answers, the way he's like, I'm not a cop. I'm just a concerned man. Yeah. He's like, a detect- <laughs> like he's just a private eye. Well, I mean, they leave it ambiguous. They basically behave while lacking the legitimacy of this authority. They seem like detectives. So we also yeah. law enforcement because there's that line where it's like uh, the cops. Well, totalitarianism is like the cops dream because like the cop is in charge. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But like democracy is like law 
Yeah, what is it? Is it Max Weber who says that for authority, you need two of the three? It's like authority of legitimacy, right? Which is like somebody who's in power gave me power. Simplest one. Right. Then you have like authority of capability or ability, Mm -hmm. which is like, oh, you know how to like lay the brick wall. You're the bricklayer or like, you know how to organize the team. You're the team lead. Right. And then you have charismatic authority, which is people like you and they give you that. And I think what they kind of reveal here is that police tend to have at least the ones that would do something this brash they have both that capable authority and the charismatic authority that charismatic maybe they're not liked but people just accept that they are that force they're and behave figure, accordingly yeah figure of the authority mm-hmm. yeah yeah the police state thrives when the cop is in charge rather than the law yeah and and it's sort of a question of why are you driven to like the way that justice is driven for you affects what you see as a legitimate pursuit of it. Right. And you see that where Quin- Quinlan is, and here's a spoiler alert. So just, just Full you know, spoilers here yeah. on out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. So Quinlan turns out to be right. And it turns out that he actually did plant evidence on the guilty guy, but he does it in such a crappy way. And it's like so blatantly, like everything's against the guy. Like, you know, Charlton Heston's character Vargas, he's like, well, you know, you're like, you think you're being racist. And he's like, no, you're racist. You're racist because you're acting like a cop and you're in Texas and like, oh, I'm an American. And it's like the most frenzied defense. And so you have like no mm-hmm. respect. He's not the Mm-mm. Quinlan's not the antihero planting evidence on the really bad guy, even though it turned out that he was. He planted evidence on a murderer. But you see this guy panicking and he's just like anyone else who's like, yeah caught up in that and you and you empathize with them and it's it's kind of revealing that corruption it, it breeds a lack of respect for justice because it can breed empathy for the guilty you right. know right because like mm-hmm. he was guilty but like not in the way he was caught type of thing because right. like when planted the evidence and a good cop wouldn't do that and vargas mm-hmm. who is our archetypal good cop because like yeah. we have vargas who's like the good cop and then yeah. quinn's who's the bad cop yeah good cop bad cop And it's like, well, that's not right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I, I like kind of, I don't know. I like, I like uh, when I first watched this, I just like winced at that whole scene. Cause I honestly thought that like Quinlan was just going to shoot the dude or something. Like it, it did He's, turn out to be bad, another scene. But, yeah. 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 Like everything that could go wrong with this guy did go wrong. Yeah. Kill somebody, plants evidence, (laughs) 
lies. Yeah, yeah. Almost like we were watching his demise, really. Yeah. He caught he, it at the right time. Okay. He's like disintegrating. You yeah. Know? I'm glad you two said that, especially you, Diego, because like film noir, the yeah. way it works is that the detective goes into the underworld. Mm. Okay. Are you going to go into Hero's Journey? No. Oh, I was like ready. I was like, I don't think there is a hero's journey in this movie, but like, I was wondering, I was like, where's the descent? Is the descent essentially Tijuana or whatever this is? Is it the setting? But I think it's Quinn's character because like, he's, Mm -hmm. I don't know. He's like this upstanding guy in his Mm -hmm. community. Like his his Mm -hmm. peers respect him, but it's actually, he's a piece of shit. And he does, he cuts all these corners, screws over all these people, Mm -hmm. presumably innocent people along Mm -hmm. the way. And it's like, is is his character descending into the darkness? That commentary on film noir? I don't know. Well, I, I think it shows a descent as a one-two punch, right? They they first depict that a person finds themselves in an environment they don't want to be. And then they're left to their choices of how to deal with that, right? So, so we're like, talking about Quinlan, correct? Well, yes. but they show that that's the theme of the movie. If you notice, almost every character gets surrounded by a hostile crowd and often more than once. And they show how capable or incapable or how moral or immoral like the given character is being surrounded by a hostile crowd or audience. I don't think it's necessarily hostile. I think he just kind of feels like because when he went back to that bar that was um, in the town where he knew and he yeah was meeting up with the next lover like he's clearly have like been there before and it almost is um as if since he had like not been there in some time yeah that maybe he himself was just like nervous to operate within like this community because he has a personal love interest yeah. obviously that's i don't really think mm, i don't really think he really has clearly he doesn't have that much respect for her right because yeah. he's like just finally reaching out just finally seeing her again mm-hmm. and i don't know maybe in a weird way maybe that did also kind of like put him off his game right because yeah. he's like this is his place where he you know where he almost can get away with anything you know yeah. what I mean? so he thinks he's above the law yes yes but yeah. he does have an urgent need to actually pursue justice like he just as I mean, like, you know, and in his own twisted way. Well, and from yeah, his yeah. perspective. I mean, I mean think about it this way. Like, he basically gets a lot of these guilty parties in a position where they're essentially helpless. And he still pursues justice, which sort of leaves him as a person not feeling threatened. But he's either corrupt or he's following justice down to, like, the most minute level because the person stops being a threat and he's still interested. And mm-hmm. so I think narrowing it down to that. You know, at first you think, okay, so he has to be corrupt and guilty. And then it turns out he was right. So then it sort of raises the question, well, at least one time he was pursuing justice down to a minute degree outside of the law in a very sort of anarchistic way. Maybe anarchism is supposed to have no coercive authority. Maybe that's not the right word, but Mm -hmm. he's going out on his own and he's doing this. And it's obviously a thing that is virtuous, even in a vacuum for him to like get to really finish off a person he is judged as guilty i mean it not to give him too much credit but quinlan sort of feels like somebody that finds out the person they like canceled didn't actually do something that bad but they still said something horrible or Mm -hmm. like almost as bad and you're like well i don't feel bad saying the earlier thing like they were still garbage you know that's that's very much the internal feeling and the internal logic he's working towards to sort of give him a to, right. to give him a bone there, mm-hmm. you know. But does he deserve that bone? I don't think so. Fuck no. no. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's 
Yeah. Because yeah. like, okay, so we have Orson Welles, who in this film, he got, got big and fat. And he's like, yeah, yeah. yeah. This mug on his face the whole time. He's like, mm-hmm. and he looks yeah, like, <laughs> he's just bloated. And then <laughs> oh, we have Charleston it, Heston, who's like very attractive man, right? Very yeah. trim. And it's like we have visually who we need to subconsciously root for and who are yeah. you know, drawn towards. Yeah. Good comeback. Yes. yes, yes, yeah. So I think Quinn, while it's overt that he's a bad guy, I don't. I, don't, I mean, there are some moments where he's like humanized. It's like okay. Yeah. A little bit of a complex character, but those are few and far between. But, but I would I, agree with that. I, I just don't really see, I don't know. I think from the, just from the beginning, they established that he had ill intentions, whether it's, right. it's, you know, and even like later in the movie, when they look at his past cases, he's like, yeah, no, he's been doing this. And like his partner has been on it. Uh, like been in on it with him. I mean, I guess you could also ask the question, right? Who almost in the question of like, who's right in war? You know what I mean? It's I like, thought yeah. it was just more like compliance through incapability. You know, the way that a rotten actor in a system co-ops people not aware at their job or responsibility into working in his favor. Cause he said his partner found all the evidence, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, his partner approached him too, so you're like, yeah, I found your cane on the, yeah, yeah. But he was, I mean, by that point, he went to Vargas first. You did, you know, mm-hmm. like, like, look what I found. Well, I think he was more distraught. That was my interpretation. Like, but but this was like a revelation. Like, oh my god, like he killed that man and no, tried to was frame just, it. But it's important. I, I think a lot of people who are distraught spend they they sort of appeal to an authority of reconciling the reason they're distraught right and like he's so going to vargas there's a reason it's not just another guy it's like oh my god i'm distraught over evidence and you seem to be my resident authority of evidence because clearly you're doing a better job than my old authority on evidence like Mm -hmm. you know you you superseded him your idea of justice, like Vargas's idea of justice supersedes Quinlan's idea of justice, you know? Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No. Right. Like, so let's talk about the film itself now. Uh, yeah. Because like when we sat down to watch this, I was like, okay, let's put on this version of it. And immediately, <laughs> oh, right. yeah. 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 Mike, you were like, oh my God, I can't, I can't, I can't watch this. Yeah. 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 Yeah, No, 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 no. (laughs) Yeah. That's, that's on point for me though. But well, yeah, I had, I'm looking at my notes. Like I, I didn't write down anything about this. I don't (laughs) know why I'm looking at my notes. I did actually write notes on this because I I do remember like the, the total feeling difference. Like I felt it. Oh yeah. Okay. So this movie was after Orson Welles, like I was saying earlier, he lost his like, you're a director, you get final cut privileges. And he was making sort of like B level movies, or if they were an A level movie, they got downgraded and marketed as B level movies, right. or he had to go to like West Germany or somewhere abroad to get his movie made later on, you know? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so at this point, he basically saw the studio cut after he was like, I'm done with the movie. The studio not only edited it, but like I think added scenes or like added more shots or footage and like changed the sound a whole bunch. And he sent a whole bunch of notes about like, no, 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 you did it all wrong. But with the edit you have now, here's how you have to change that to make it work. And he wrote like, what did they say? 58 pages, 89 pages, I think. Okay, it was an inordinate. It wasn't just here's one like our notes we took of like, you know, one page, you know, maybe 
mine's three lines like <laughs> but 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 he gave a big an, almost an artistic statement of how it ought to be modified mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so the edit you're watching or the one we started watching second we turned it on that was the studio edit you know well it's like not that good and then we we switched to the reconstructed basically somebody took the version and they took his notes and they edited according to his notes mm-hmm. like i think in the mm-hmm. Was know, that the, the biggest and was the intro like the biggest change essentially? No, no, no. A whole like a lot of really long shots were just cut. Oh, wow. Yeah. Because at Hollywood wow. at the time, like all the shots were supposed to be between like 10 and 25 seconds. And he I made see them, the like, I got to see the like studio, like with the widely the version that's like easier to see. I just want to see the difference between the two. It's it's very I don't know, dude. Is it like Justice League? Yeah, oh, shit. Zack I mean, Snyder. I saw the first Justice League and I saw the four hour one, so I might as well just, you know, see this. I don't know. I started version. watching the extended one and I'm like, it looks like they took a two star movie and made it a two and a half star. And I could have been wrong, but <laughs> I was like, I must watch it in black and white. That was close. Oh, man. That's, I mean, here's the thing. I saw the non director's cut Blade Runner and it's with Harrison Ford going like, she wasn't a replicant after all. And we had a white picket fence and lived happily. And he's like literally talking right. over this awful shot of them driving in a car, you know, mm-hmm. like, and he did it bad on purpose. So they wouldn't use it. They yeah. Used it. And then they, yeah, he and the director were like, well, this is trash. Let's not do this. And yeah, like, do it. Badly. Like, yeah, fuck it. They're not even going to use it. Like, yeah, it's fine. It's like tears in rain. And then yeah. here's one. It's like, I don't know what the replicant was saying. You know, because the studio ending of Blade Runner in the studio ending of Brazil, like three years later. I don't know. Have you guys seen Brazil? I have not seen. Brazil. I haven't seen. I, it's like 1984 part two. It's like it's like 1984 meets Monty Python. It's Cute. very oh, weird, wow. but it's like horrific, too. It's mm. it's by the animator of Monty Python, but it's a live action movie. Mm-hmm. And it has the guy that plays Elizabeth's dad in Pirates of the Caribbean. Uh, he's like the villain in Tom oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh Jonathan Bryce Howard, I want to say. He's yeah, he's a client yeah, yeah. in uh Glen Gary Glen Ross, I want to what'd you say? You heard me. I said <laughs> Sorry guys, this is my voice acting creole. <clears throat> you can't kill me, John. <laughs> anyway. No, but it wasn't. <laughs> wait, 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 stop. This was not Jeffrey Rush, though. It was, it was not. You can't beat me, Jack. Like, okay. not, like, it was a fucking like Elizabeth. <laughs> like, he every, oh, scene, every scene, he looks like he's about to get mugged. That like, you know, I've seen him yeah. in other movies. I can't, I can't think of them. Was yeah. he in, uh, what was, was he in Moulin Rouge? Was he in Lord of the Rings? You know who I'm talking about? I've not seen Mulan. Rouge. Neither have I. No, you're not missing much. I, I like. Here's the thing. What's the Lars? What, what's the name of the director? You got Lars right. I forget. Uh, it's name. not Von Trier. It's the it's other not, one. No. Uh, Lars. I don't know. Random name. He did the new like Elvis a, movie, which is a a fucking nightmare to watch. Oh really? Oh god. Oh, because he did Great Gatsby and he yes. did the Romeo and Juliet movie. Yes. It's oh. just like that. Except on drugs. I would watch him do a Deadpool movie. Oh my like, god. That would be That'd be a lot. <laughs> I know. Deadpool would be shooting people, there'd be like fifty angles of it. Right. I would and watch he wouldn't him. say one word for like thirty minutes. I, I need like every bullet to be every like gunshot you hear from Deadpool to be a different uh shot. Like you know what I mean? Like yeah. like like 
like you know just over the shoulder like a and ching the and thunder. then like a mario noise like just you know, with doja what? cat playing in the background Diego's the so upset. So this is going off in so many different directions. Like, you know, Diego had the direction he wanted to go in. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm we were li- like, Doja Cat and Mario. You're like, get out of here. This is my dream. I was like, like this is my dream. Yeah. <laughs> You're talking about Pirates of the Caribbean over there. I mean, yeah. <laughs> but anyways, back to the touch of evil. Yeah, back to the touch of evil after going over every other movie. Like, um, <laughs> I got, I okay. What did you guys think of the motel clerk? Um, I don't know what they were going for. <laughs> but he's a spy, like a rat. But at the same time, I think he's weird a, trope. He's uh, what? Well, what do you think the trope was? I I think it was. Uh, I don't can even, I can I give a hot take? Just give a hot take. Yep, okay, sure. he was the foil to or the reflection of Quinlan's partner. He was uh compliant in capability. In another form. Because he knew what was happening? Yeah. I mean, he turns the radio off so he could hear what was going on. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's not clicking for me. It's so the mu- the loud music's playing and they're ganging up on his wife, the woman. Yes. And then he turns the radio off. Well, if they can hear everything on his end of the vent, he can hear everything on their end of the vent. The th- walls are pretty thin that she can have a whispered conversation with the tenants on the other side. Yeah, so he uh, heard everything. He heard it all. He knew what was happening. Right, but did he degree. um did he uh, talk to like we're just saying like in a way he was just like a, a bystander almost like someone like He was giving up. an air of legitimacy to the entire geographic situation and occurrence by being at his post, not ringing the alarm, like so he was essentially, um, like you see something happen out out in the world, someone you see a gaggle of people just run up with their phones yeah. out, ready to just capture the moment. That's him. Yeah, but almost worse than that, he's the guy who, you know, he's like the clerk who stands near the door while something's going on and back. That's not worse. That's literally the same thing. That's in, in which someone watches something right they're not helping they're absolutely but a bystander has no authority where them behaving like they normally behave indicates safety or danger but if you're the clerk and you're acting like nothing's going on if someone pulled up to that motel and started asking questions he would be there to get up walk up in front and like talk right like and if he's talking it means it's not an unsupervised motel he's providing the difference between supervision and a lack of supervision which lends it essentially gives them a shield to do what they want. Right? And he was, yeah, he's obviously was on Quinlan's side because uh, Quinlan's partner was the one to drive up uh, Vargas's wife to the motel. Yeah, and yeah. you know, I, and also Grandy. I mean, it, and I, no one was there too. Yeah, I well, I wonder if they, took they knew mm-hmm. because Quinlan hadn't met Grandy yet, right? So maybe that was incidental. Grandy is the wife's name. Wait a minute. No, because because Quinlan knew that his wife was at the hotel, which means that the partner told him I put him at Grandy's hotel must have told him that off screen. Right. Because we remember when he took her there. Right. But but you can wonder, did he know it was Grandy's place or not? But Orson Welles knew to bring up to him. Oh, have you do you know where your wife is? Like Mm -hmm. he knew she was in danger. How did he know she was in danger? Because the guy knew he was dropping her off at a dangerous place, you know. 
At least that's the way I interpret it. You're sitting there like, oh man. And then like, yeah, all I can think of is when the um what is the, when his partner just is like, oh, I found this cane. And I was like, yeah, you thought that was going to save you. Okay. Okay, guy. Well, he redeemed himself. Okay, even if he was complicit the mm-hmm. whole time, mm-hmm. he redeemed himself by the end of the movie. Yeah, I feel like you're only required morally to change the amount of complicity you actually provide. Like, he wasn't about to become a great investigator after literally using his bad investigative techniques were like sort of, you know, providing an air of legitimacy to Quinlan. He's not I mean, he was he wasn't pretending to be a bad investigator. He just was. He's not going to get good because he's on the right side now. You know, mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. OK, I'm going to here's my hot take. OK, I'm ready. This movie was filmed beautifully. Yeah. Like it for the time. Like yeah. I, I I just thought it was reminiscent of a movie that would be made now. Like same techniques. Like it's it's yeah. very timeless. Yeah. Even though it is black and white, like it feels like it would be made you know, nowadays almost. Yeah. Um, But the thing that really bothered me about this movie mm-hmm. was the pacing. I don't mind mm, slow movies, I but like this was, it felt stop and go. Like yeah. the movie had a good pace going on and then it came to a standstill. And I'm like, yeah, it reminded me of American Gothic. Uh, just like that style where like, it almost feels like every scene is like a, a, a stage play. And this is probably very like on brand for, it has to be on brand for Orson, right? So. Well, I mean, it's more like a product of his time. I feel like yeah. he intersperses more modern shots and more modern pacing with an otherwise contemporary mm-hmm. pacing, an otherwise contemporary style of shots. Like conventional. Yeah. He has like the, the cars driving in the desert and right. nobody else was doing that. And that's really cool. And the movie picks up and then it goes back to like mid range shot dialogue where everyone's facing the camera, which is what every other movie was kind of doing at the time. I mean, even like 12 angry men where it's like, Ooh, it was a teleplay and it was realistic acting. Still, everyone's facing the camera, still old fashioned blocking, still everything learned in the golden age of Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Dare I say it could have gotten trimmed down. Like, oh, this yeah. This was yeah, like yeah. an hour, 45 minutes. Which is why I'm curious about the first one we were supposed the to see. Theatrical. Yeah. Which yeah, was 90 yeah. minutes. The problem that I've heard about it, because I haven't seen the whole thing, is that a lot of it is like, oh, let's get rid of the really short and really long shots and sort of make them all medium length, which people don't really do anymore. We do either short shots, two to five seconds, or we do very long shots. I feel like the film. issue was more so the script. Like it was yeah. like mm-hmm. repeating itself and telling yeah. us information that if you're watching the movie, you would have picked up on. Like, but you have a very mature sense of media consumption. Like, I mean, for this type of film. <laughs> yeah. Cause I was going to say too, I, I feel like the, the, uh, to your point of the script where yeah. I did kind of want this to be almost a little bit shorter. Like, I guess maybe pick up the pacing, trim the dialogue, like yeah. for that one scene where they find the shoe box, like, Oh, the camera looks prominently looks at the shoe box. Oh, it's empty. Yeah. And then yeah. the same scene, I found two sticks of dynamite in this. And then we have our main character Vargas, like, wait a minute. I looked at that. That was empty 10 minutes ago. You couldn't have put in those sticks of dynamite in there. It was empty. You framed him. And I'm like, we know this already. Mm-hmm. I did kind of like that. Could have been like, that. oh, my God, you framed him. Yeah. yeah. Just could have looked at the dynamite like, wait a minute. You. But, but I mean, that's like a very efficient storytelling style. Like if you miss that, you miss that whole story. beat. And 
as a result, we've been able to put more into a plot at a time. But, but you know, stop the movement, the pacing for those that aren't paying attention to the movie. You shouldn't take it. You it's, shouldn't. It's not that. It's that sometimes people don't put into their head what is going on until it's been drilled in three different ways. And and I've known a lot of, you know, like older people who watch movies. They they sort of, um, what's the word? They they can't follow a lot of newer films. The amount of people I knew over fifty who said I don't have any idea what's going on in everything everywhere at once, or into the Spider Verse, or a whole slew of these movies that. You know, we're like, oh, that's cute and fun. But I mean, a lot of people I knew who were they they were their our age or younger kind of thought that everything everywhere at once dragged in the middle in the end. And they're like, this stuff was said too many times. And the generation in there that would what that would have been alive when Touch of Evil was made. They were like, I had no idea what was happening even before she got the earpieces. Like there were too many events, too much was going on. And I've heard this for other things, too, like watching Fleabag or whatever. Um what where I haven't heard it is really slow shows like um, Mad Men or Breaking Bad, where each story pace is like, oh, my God, this is two or three minutes long. Well, aren't those like dialogue heavy shows? I mean, but there's a lot of very stoic dialogue in the shows where, like, you make a statement and then people spend time reacting. And yeah, true here. That wasn't done. It was just they kept reiterating the point. But I think it still all points to somebody who doesn't really have a i don't know they didn't it's 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 almost like a movie made for somebody who didn't grow up with movies you know i mean i understand this movie was cutting edge for the time yeah yeah so it's like you know you have to give it some leniency but like i felt like we were going in circles sometimes yeah no it 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 was a very hypnotic movie like it it felt like it very much felt like a like a sunday movie and i did kind of feel like it did almost kind of feel like a, like a rule of threes within a video game where it was like it, you just kind of see the same thing, but iterative, uh-huh. like, you know, a different yeah. iteration every yeah. time. And I was like, OK, cool. I, I totally get it. I wonder if this how this movie would have done in, in color, though, only just to help with this pacing, to help with like all of the like different kinds of more like. I think it would have taken away. You from think it so? Because the composition yeah. is so. It was made for black and white. Okay. Everything with like the color and the shadows and mm-hmm. like yeah. if it was the, colorized. The That's something you always have to think about too is that like how does a range of contrast compare to like uh, multiple hues and value, uh, you know. And I think they could have filmed it like Breaking Bad if it was in color because. It oh, was, yeah. I fe- it, and it felt like that, right? Because at yeah. some points like when the mirror scenes and whatnot, but it felt really like it. It was like visually amusing to watch, like very easy to watch. Yes. Yeah. And and compared, we should have probably watched like contemporary films before this, because I feel like we're also sort of. I mean, it's 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 like I am going to judge it by the contemporary era. Obviously, I live in 2023, but there's like an amount of charity, like because I've watched a lot of like silent films where it literally is like what you were saying, Armand, like the theater layout and the shot is way too long. And you're like, why do we have to have this long of a conversation? Everything's Uh, in focus. Yeah. uh, Short focal range. Yeah. Everything looks like a headshot from the mall. It's just (laughs) like, thanks. We needed this. And like every like beat and switch is really lame and really slow. So I feel like maybe I am forgiving it too much and I actually don't enjoy a lot of that. And I'm just like refusing to acknowledge it, you know, mm-hmm. I don't blame you. <laughs> I, 
I don't because like uh, visually stunning, awesome, yeah. beautiful. My issue is just the storytelling. Yeah, like, respect, it could have been yeah. more tight. Yeah, it, it meanders. I don't. Yeah. I don't think. I don't think boring is like a really nice way to put it. But I just felt like it was. I think our mind was right where it was just like feeling a little slow. You looked bored. Oh well, <laughs> you were getting angry at the movie a couple of times. You're like, no. Oh. Oh, I mean, like, I mean, you know, it's just mostly because the, uh, just a classic thing of like just seeing like the clear, like, just portrayal of like one person to another and people just completely being in on it is like, that sucks, you know, because at the end of the day, it's kind of like, what about this person? Like, you're, they're clearly wrong. And obviously, you want to see Vargas. Vargas's voice like be heard because like yo there's this is not right so I think like I don't know sometimes when I see stuff like that it's just like I, I mean I know we're, we're waiting for the resolution right that's the point of the plot yeah. in the movie but sometimes in the moment I'm just like man fuck that <laughs> <laughs> so yeah well Vargas got so many good one-liners to like end a scene like he had at least two or three right yeah he was like See, amigo. Well, no, the one where he's like, save your tears for like the mis- oh, yeah. or whatever, the ones who went to their deaths innocent or something. Like, no, that was it. It was save your tears for the innocent ones. And I was like, oh, what? <laughs> like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so good. So good. Yeah. All right, gentlemen, I think it's time to get off the fence. Yes. A few questions regarding this. Okay, I'm ready. So, my first question is Is this film still relevant today? The Touch of Evil. Hmm. I think for its for its art form it is, but broadly, uh No. Um as a as like sort of a like historical benchmark in like the, the Hayes Code collapsing and in Orsimo's career and in like I don't know, like um I I would say it depends. It doesn't universally you can't assume anyone should watch it. But a lot of people that are interested in any of these things would get something out of watching it. Okay. Yeah, I uh, wasn't really, I wasn't that big of a fan. I don't really think it holds up that well. I think if you're looking for these kind of long shots, I understand and I do love like callbacks and seeing the original of things. Mm -hmm. However, this is just like one of those things where it just feels like it just doesn't stand out to me on as a profound film for me yeah it, it stands out as a 1950s film mm-hmm. yes you know? yes yeah you weren't changed no your life wasn't changed no i mean it, it's mostly not relevant in my opinion yeah i think there's some elements that's like oh that's yeah. interesting for today but i think most of it's pretty dated no one wants to see like a bad copy, really fucking bad. You know, what I comically mean? bad. Yes, racist. I, mean, I kind of like that just because it was like he just did a fucking good job at being gross. I mean, that's all I got to say. Good villain. <laughs> speak English. Oh, I don't hey, speak uh, Mexican. Also, yeah. yeah. Also, on the topic of a good villain, because I wanted to say this earlier, is that I felt like a good villain is someone who's. Whether they're talking or not talking, just when they're on screen, you just feel it, you know, and I just, yeah. it was just like fun. And I think it was fun to watch him for that. But I've also seen a good number of villains, you yeah. know, in the, in modern area. So another thing to make him an even better villain is that he should have had some sort of regret. 
Because he clearly did a lot of bad things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There was only so mm-hmm. much depth that he had. Right. It was very two-dimensional. Maybe his lover was his um his regret, you know, not taking that seriously or something. I mean, they allude to it, but they don't actually right. go into it. You oh. can tell it doesn't really phase him, you know? Yeah. And that's why I feel like this is like, like what Pacific Rim is for robot films. This is like for <laughs> film noir where it's like almost good at being a trashy movie, you know, like it aspired to be fun and it's incidentally like got some interesting shots. Yep. It's not really fun. Once you get out of like, when you get past the MTV era of editing, it's like, Mm -hmm. this is not moving at the right pace, but it's, it's fun. If you're like, Oh, I'm going to go through all the film noir movies and you've like watched four Humphrey Bogart films where every (laughs) shot's a middle shot. Mm -hmm. And it's just two people going, how'd you got that? Well, I got this. And this one's like, Oh my God, there's like a Cadillac convertible and there's a bomb going off. And there's Mm -hmm. like a gang sneaking into like a highway side motel and like weird things that don't really happen in any other movie. It's, it's so visually stunning. I wish I could just have it on in the background on mute. Yeah, it would go very well with like yes. tunes. And oh, like a yes. mute. Yeah. Yes, I agree with that. I hate. Yeah, I hate to say it, but I completely agree with that. I yeah. and I could put like it could totally just be jazz. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Just like just like more of a vibe. You have like a, a like a all of your hue lights are sent to like <laughs> a value across Back to the hue lights. Yeah. Like it, it like starts as zero over the TV and then goes all the way to a hundred at the end of your place. That would be kind of cool, man. Oh yeah. That would be cause we did that with uh fallen angels, right? Yeah. 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 That was uh it was playboy Cardi that was playing. It was, <laughs> fun. It was I, nice. I think I know the answer to this question, but Mike, yeah. do you think this is better than citizen Kane? Okay, actually, oh I mean, if you're, I, I, you know, Citizen Kane has become a really big cliche in a lot of ways because that's kind of the cost of like winning your art form. Like, mm. if you become the sea change where like everything starts imitating you because you are the first example, the first example becomes kind of forgettable. So, mm. if we're asking the same question of like, is this relevant today? Like, if I had to pick between Citizen Kane and this movie for you learn all about cinema from one movie it would be a tough race you know there's there's a lot more in this movie that's not in citizen kane it's built on top of that you know but i think the storytelling of citizen kane is much better you have this uh descent we have this man who falls from grace kind of like icarus flying too close to the sun but that's all he does i mean quinlan falls from grace and then becomes an active agent of a villain in like someone else's life and that's examined you know i guess (laughs) i'm just saying you're building up this movie more than it should be no 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 i i just i don't want to build up citizen kane too much because citizen kane only survives through a historical lens in my opinion it does not there are movies that are like not even great just really good movies that you could learn as much cinema from you could watch phantom uh, uh of the paradise like that, that okay. the like tacky mm-hmm. musical film and learn all about filmmaking that you learn from Citizen Kane. I'll stand by that statement. Like every shot, every like cross cut or fade in or ironic plot point used wasn't used really well in Phantom of the Paradise. It was dumb, goofy fun. But you get everything from Charlie Chaplin to that movie 
you know, and there's a lot of movies that will do that. That's that's all I'm saying. I I haven't seen either of these movies, but I know how ridiculous Phantom of the Paradise is. (laughs) So I at least understand the gravity of this take. But (laughs) I I think I'm going to like also cut in and say to interject between y'all's conversation i yeah. wish we saw citizen kane instead today. we should have because i just kind of feel time. like yeah because i feel like as an intro to orson wells i was just like i just i would have want rather just seen the best thing and not his like follow-up in like you know him being distracted you want to see his first thing because right it's because also... i don't want to see him being like i don't want his work being distracted because distracted by studio pressure Mm. the mechanism that he found himself yeah exactly exactly because like the you know maybe even creating this noir film and him being like this gross person was kind of his outlet being like yeah his fuck you to the cinema like industry like all right you think i'm like an exiled weird piece of crap that no one wants around like i'll make a movie where i'm a weird piece of crap but at the end every exiled person does that though yeah, I mean, but that's OK. When you talk about it that broadly, that's just the way we all construct our identity in our given environment. Like we're forced to we're forced to redefine the things that we cannot avoid or shed, you know, mm-hmm. like so. Sure. But also he very specifically like, you know, he went off to Europe and he like hit nothing that he did. I think he said this in one of his interviews of like, Oh, if you could do it all over again or live in it, would you? And he's like, Oh yeah, easily. And they're like, well, but now have you like picked friends over like good actors or good cinematographers just cause you want to be comfortable. And he's like, Oh, that's all I do now. You know? So mm-hmm. I think he was beyond his time, but he knew he was, but it wasn't less than him at the peak of his time. It's right. just the world was so much smaller than he start when he started, right. you know, he, he did it before America was in world war two, you know? And mm-hmm. then now there's this layer of how, how conflict in the community is different. It, it was after world war two, you know? Of course. Right. I guess this is a better question to ask. Is this a good representation of film noir? Oh, uh, no, unless you, it's, it's about as good of a representation as Blade Runner is, you know, like it's, it's strikingly fitting the definition, but not in a way that makes it resemble the genre. Right. You know? Okay. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's a, a genre bend, if you will. Yeah. I feel like it's like post noir, if that's even a thing. Yeah, like I mean, there's noir it, and then this is like, oh, this is like kind of noir. So it's like kind of branching out. Yeah, I would say that. Have you guys ever heard of the like moral versus psychological versus sociological storytelling? Nope. OK, so like Game of Thrones, right? Game of Thrones or Les Mis sociological storytelling is the broadest one where you're you want to show the way a society or a community changes. City of God's another one. Um, so you tell the change of that community through many, many stories. Right. And psychological storytelling is a step back from that, where you have independent individuals. Golden Age of Hollywood is hyper psychological storytelling, not really at all. A little bit moral storytelling, but it pivots on the choices individuals make. And the and the end result is like very uh, individualistic and is right. outcome for everyone. It's like uh, the conflict uh, within yourself type yeah. of thing. Yeah, and and so the point I'm getting at here is Part that man. film noir came out came out as the during the height of psychological storytelling, the old moral storytelling of I tell a story because it tells you how to do things the right way, 
which is like the oldest form of storytelling. It had gone beyond that. It was willing to like simultaneously operate amorally or immorally, but it wasn't yet sociological. And you're kind of getting a little bit of that in this movie. You know, you're getting they're showing you the conditions of Americans and Mexicans and how they interact. And that's a significant force in the story. And if you're not aware of that force, a lot of the story would probably make no sense. Like if you're from India or you're from, I don't know, a country that may not have a lot of knowledge of it. Like, I guess everyone knows about America nowadays. But if you had if you had somebody who didn't know the dynamic at the U.S. Mexican border, they didn't know the tropes. They didn't know the distrust. They didn't know the archetypical roles in like the common sense. You would you would you would parts of this movie be like, okay, well, what what is that? You know, it's very cultural. Yeah. And so so I think it's it's at the end of psychological storytelling on the eve of sociological storytelling that you sort of see this movie. Yes. My final question. Okay. Would you recommend this movie to a friend? I would recommend it to most of my friends. Oh my god! Yeah, I, I can't believe not. you would. No, I would, I would not, not, dude. No, <laughs> I was, this is are you like a sadist? No, <laughs> I, I. Well, but that's the thing. I watch a lot of. Yeah, you watch. You're a film boy. I mean, I watch a lot of like like fast cinema is such a recent thing. This, I'm not saying it needs to be fast. I'm saying there's better examples of film noir. There's better mm-hmm. examples of a oh, but or they, well, or, but but Orson if you thought Wells this was movie. slow, you're gonna think Maltese Falcon is like a crawl. Or like, but have you seen Maltese Falcon? I have not. I, neither have amazing. I. And but like you know, then if it's a crawl, it's a crawl. But this movie but was a crawl. The, the context is important yeah. as well. The story being told. Yeah, is important I as mean, well. the, my problem was like, is a stop and go. It's like, all right, we're we're speeding up. Okay, time to stop. And it's like, if it's consistently a certain pace, that's fine. Mm-hmm. It could be slow. I watch boring ass movies. I watch A24 movies. So <laughs> see, cause that's what I think was this. This was a sort of movie that is trying to be more kinetic than its predecessors. And let's try it. It's it, you're, but if you watched a movie today, right? Like a movie like, um, like hot fuzz or Shaun of the dead mm. where there's these brutally fast cuts in the middle of a much more typically paced movie. You he's making be, breakfast. Right, right, right. But the, the, you're used to the default. So the effort to surpass it and then go back to it isn't really much of a like an editing offense. But when the movie's already slower than you're used to and there's brief moments where it's a little faster or the same speed that you're used to, you're like, God, you were transcending the crap and now you're back in it. Oh, like that's the feeling you get when the movie goes back to being too slow. Like you you can't keep forgiving its slowness because you see that it's capable of being faster, you know? So I, I think it is a relative thing. Yeah. It is. It's okay. One out of three. That's fine. One out of three. <laughs> One out of three. Yeah. A, a very like, One sorry, sorry. No, you're good. No, you're good. You're good. I, I think I'm, I think I'm throwing a little shade and that's okay. I think I'm literally it's deservedly so. I feel so bad. Oh, I feel embarrassed for even recommending this. Whoa! I should have just said Citizen Kane. Whoa! Mike was like, "Let's watch an Orson Welles movie." I'm like, "Well, I don't want to be the normie." <laughs> Yo, let me pick something but, else. But, Can but, I be completely you, honest too? Yeah. When I this whole like touch of evil thing went by so fast because before and i think yeah. let me kind of right. set the tone for set the tone. <laughs> here. we talked about watching 65 
which is like the recent Adam Driver movie where it's literally landing on a planet with dinosaurs and it's apparently 65 million years ago yeah, 65 humans million. discovered earth and i was like fuck yeah yeah oh, so yeah. and then we did like a hyperspace jump to touch of evil and i was open for it because like, i recommended butt boy and you guys didn't want to oh yeah i could yeah that was like crickets in the chat i'm so sorry <laughs> <laughs> i see the mode you're in but everybody's yeah. mode for goofy film gets hyper like mine is that you know the phantom of the paradise thing i mentioned like who else wants to watch that movie like i mean i think i would watch it but then i would have to then tell you after the movie if i could like sit through a podcast and talk <laughs> you know what i mean it's a little honesty yeah i mean it's not it's not but my point is like it's not a particularly great film for right. my gaze it was a novelty okay and my goofy little prison of context it was a joyous party favor you know yes and a who- joyous party favor <laughs> you know i think if i get this correct by the way yeah i think i figured out the theme boys what's the theme uh muholland drive was armand's pick um my pick it was, was more Shin. of Mike's pick. What? Well, is this accurate? Yeah. Because Mike recommended. Oh yeah, yeah. You I did. And I pulled drive. my yeah. friend into it, Anthony, because it's his favorite movie of all time. Yeah. So then we can say it's Anthony's pick. No, but <laughs> <laughs> so that was Anthony's pick. So you know, uh, Shin Ultraman was mine. Yeah. Uh, Mike's was Touch of Evil, and this means that uh, Armand gets to pick the next one. We figured it. Watching Butt Boy. <laughs> <laughs> We're not gonna watch Butt Boy. Okay, I'll pick I, something uh, good. Should right, we actually worry. do Citizen Kane? Because I feel like yes. the, if someone's listening redeem. to this podcast, yeah, yeah, we need to we redeem need, Orson Welles. Yeah, we also We're need to this, officially right? be like, yeah, yeah, yeah like yeah. it's. I just I'm surprised that I don't know. I really want to show you guys a Tarkovsky movie, but if this is slow, Tarkovsky uh, syrup, you know. Children's End or Childhood's End? Uh no. Not uh, the Arthur C. Clarke book. <laughs> no, it's uh Tarkovsky did like Solaris and Stalker. Well, he did. Well, I know he did those. I two. feel like he did Childhood's End, Children's End. It's a World up. War II movie. I got my phone. We're gonna look this up. Anyways, guys, it's been real. <laughs> anyways yeah anyways we'll pick something good yeah, yeah yeah i'll pick something good yeah yo yes until next time mine. what it is on you <laughs> it's on me it's on me guys this has been a lot of fun it was a good it was a good time yes yeah, yeah oh, always a great time I, I, with y'all oh, i yeah. just yeah i wanted to say the the whole time of us finding this movie and then watching it and talking about it definitely better than the movie i'll concede that much when you make decisions for your company you look for the no-brainers if you have a lot of mailing to do stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89 percent off usps and ups Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. I think out of, any, yeah, out of the, any of the lowest blows that I was wor- worried to, you know, to give, yours was like, damn man. <laughs> Damn, man. Damn, well, man. no, I mean, I had this movie saved. I've watched it. This is, I think, the third or fourth time I've watched it. Oh, damn, yeah. really? Nice. Yeah, so, like... I would never watch this again. 
Wow. <laughs> Here it comes. Uh, the real opinion. I mean, we go. I second that. So Diego's just like the film gave me. Cancer. I mean, I would, like, I would no. screenshot certain <laughs> frames. Like, oh, this is fucking awesome. But yes. like, I yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I agree with that. I agree. A, a GIF of some, you know, like a little chopped up little. There you go. I would print it out. We gotta, we gotta do like maybe Citizen Kane is the one, but at some point we gotta do like a thirties, like even if it's good, it's filmed like all middle shots that are like ten seconds long. You know, it's okay compared to the last movie we did. Yeah, this is a complete opposite. <laughs> like, <laughs> ten eighty turn. Yeah. yeah. All right, guys, yeah. are you ready to close this out? Yeah. All right. Thank you so much. No, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. All right. See you. See you. See you. That's it for this time on The Syndicate. We hope you enjoyed yourself. Keep the conversation going by adding us on Instagram and letterboxed at Syndicate. Or join the Discord server where you can catch Armand along other podcasters and listeners at syndicate.com slash discord. And until next time, stop that scroll and spend more time watching. Goodbye.